listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. Uh, it's been an exciting start to the year for some people, certainly, and actually for the world's press on astronomy. We really picked up on a story in the last uh, week or so about a very unusual discovery from radio telescopes, uh, specifically a telescope called the Murchison Wide Field Array down in Australia. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Natasha Hurley-Walker from Curtin University and the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research down in Perth. So... Natasha, welcome to the program again. I know we've had you on uh, before. This exciting discovery that you've made that has hit the world's press by by storm, um, what have you found? Yeah, thanks, Chris. Good to be back. Um, Yeah, it's been a really exciting ride. So we have been mapping the sky with radio waves using the Murchison Widefield Array, and I'm carrying out a big survey to look at the whole southern sky across a really wide range of low radio frequencies. Um, your very avid listeners might have heard of the Galactic and Extragalactic All-Sky MWA Survey, or GLEAM, and I'm currently working on GLEAMX, the extended, twice the resolution, 10 times the sensitivity version of that. And of course, if we're going to get more sensitivity, uh, what we're doing is we're observing the sky for longer. And when you're observing the sky for longer, you've got the opportunity there to see if anything is changing. In the sky. So I came up with a student project idea. This was for an undergraduate student. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun if we looked at pairs of observations that are pointing at the same place? And we just looked at the differences between them. For kind of technical reasons, this is actually easier than making really deep, beautiful images of each of the observations. You can subtract them much earlier in the processing and then see what pops out. So he did that over 2020. Uh, his name is Tyrone O'Doherty, and he's just a final year undergrad um, doing this like two days a week. And over the course of 2020, you know, it was obviously a pretty hard year. Mm. Uh, he developed my little four line prototype code into some really excellent code that could run on our supercomputers. And uh, yeah, he looked through about 24 hours of the data that we'd taken for GleamX which was spread out over a couple of months in early 2018. And he found hundreds of things that changed, but most of those were just artifacts caused by radio galaxies. Like these are really distant radio sources just being moved around by the ionosphere, which is different between the two observations. So, you know, that's mostly what we expected because there haven't really been that many low frequency radio transients detected. So we thought, you know, it's a student project. We'll just put limits. But he had this one candidate that was really, really bright. And we were like, well, you know, it could be a satellite, could be some RFI, radio frequency interference. You know, keep looking into it. And he kept looking into it and he couldn't see any reason why it wasn't real. But we were rapidly getting to the end of 2020, he needed to write up his thesis. So, you know, we wrote up the thesis. Well, one interesting candidate. Uh, and then he moved on to do a PhD with uh, some colleagues on a completely different topic. So at the beginning of last year, 2021, I started looking into this staggeringly bright, apparently real transient radio source thinking, oh, it's going to be, you know, something that we already know about. It's going to be uh, the remains of an exploded star, like a supernova remnant. Um, It's going to be a gamma ray burst afterglow. It's going to be just a long term scintillation. So like the foreground space magnifying uh, a galaxy that we couldn't see and then it'll you know disappear again and that's why it's 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 come and gone 
well, they're not boring to people who research those particular things, but for your purposes, they're standard astronomical objects, right? Exactly. So I kind of was thinking, oh, it's going to be something that we already know about that's changing really slowly. And I thought, okay, well, one of the ways that we can understand objects that change really slowly is we can look at the way they change with frequency. So I looked at the observations taken around the same time that were at a different frequency because we have to step through different frequencies while we're observing because the telescope can't observe them at once. So I looked either side of the observation at different frequencies and it wasn't there. And so that was like immediately just incredibly crushing because if something is astrophysical, it is typically observed, it's, you can see it across a wide range of frequencies. So immediately I was like, okay, it's not real. Like we just, there's no narrow band signals that are not like human generated. So it's not real. And then I kept looking, right? Kept looking. And we came back to the same frequency again. And the source came back. And I was like, okay, that's really strange. We've definitely done something wrong then at this frequency. Or, right, there's the other sort of horrifying or terrifying or wonderful, depending on how you look at it, possibility that we found a cosmic repeating radio signal at a single frequency. Which is weird, right? Because most often astronomy doesn't appear at just one frequency. That sounds like the really unusual thing there. Exactly. And so for a moment there, I thought we found something that was repeating, that, you know, had done this thing twice. It was it was attached to the sky, right? So like a satellite or an airplane would be moving through the sky or it couldn't be in the same place if we looked 10 minutes later. You know, you can't make things orbit uh, so that they stay in the same place, except at really specific places in the sky. And this was not, you know, in that the right place to, to be able to do that. So it was definitely celestial, apparently, and coming back at the same frequency and really, really bright. And that was just this moment, you know, where in, in you know, we all went completely nuts on Slack because, um, well, you think you found aliens, right? Yeah. That's what you'd think. So and, and that's because this is the if we were looking for aliens, as people have been doing for SETI and so on, is you look for repeating signals. If you want a signal to say, hey, I'm here, you send a repeating signal just going beep, 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 beep. Right. That's right. And, and you would do it at a repetition rate, which is not similar to anything else in the universe. Right. You would do it at a rate that no one's ever seen before. If you repeat your signal every second, people are going to, well, uh, other alien astronomers are going to think, oh, it's just a pulsar. If you repeat your signal every nanosecond, you know, maybe it's going to get difficult when you have propagation effects in space to actually pick up something at that frequency. It's going to get blurred out. Yeah. If you did it every year, there's every chance that any civilization would miss it. Right. So something on this timescale where it's sort of every 20 minutes is it's just utterly chilling. Like I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it again now. It was really scary. So. We have this repeating radio signal. I've got I've got two pulses, um, and they're only at a single frequency. I've I've ruled out satellites. I've ruled out airplanes. They're fixed on the sky. So I'm like, okay, well that's very weird. Um, but there's a time between them, right? So there's this sort of 18 minutes between these two different pulses. So I'm like, well, it can't hurt. So I keep looking through the data, and I keep looking until I've come to you know 36 minutes, right? Twice 18. I've come to another pulse. And it's actually a different frequency observation. And there it is, right? The same source as that. So concluded two things, right? I can predict the period 
So the, the distance between the two pulses initially, it stays the same and you can predict when it's going to appear. And also it's at a different frequency. So it's not aliens. And I have dealt with a lot of alien questions over the last week uh, of this excitement. Um, why does that mean it's not aliens? Okay. So when you're looking uh, to, when you're producing a radio signal, there's a certain amount of power that you need to put in, in order to generate that signal. And that power goes up with the bandwidth of the signal, with how many frequencies that you're producing it. And I kept looking at this source and I kept finding that actually it's emitting continuously across all the frequencies as low as we can go, which is about 72 megahertz, all the way up to as high as we can go, which is about 230 megahertz, continuously across that whole band. And you can do the math, right? You can work out how much power that would take. And the answer is this just ludicrous number of like 10 to the 31 ergs per second, right? Technical numbers, but just a stupid amount of power. It's like, um, it's not, okay, it's not unbelievable. It's about 1% of the sun's luminosity. But that's still a lot of energy to spend on a signal. That's more than we as the human race would be able to do, oh, for yeah. example. Yeah, so. But yeah, yeah, quite like, some way. Like a ludicrous amount, and to be emitting essentially no information, right? So there's there's no information encoded in the signal in amplitude or frequency. It's just it, it looks a very much these little pulses that we're seeing that that take thirty to sixty seconds to to come through um, the observation for us. They look a lot like pulses from pulsars. So they look like they just they just kind of get brighter and then they get dimmer again. They look kind of boring. They look quite natural. You would think that if an alien were trying to send a signal, it would encode something rather than just send something out that's that's very natural. You mentioned pulsars. These are these things that that were discovered back in the, the 1960s by Jocelyn Belbonel in, in not dissimilar circumstances of finding something really weird in some radio data and thinking it might be aliens for similar reasons that you've just, just described before establishing that, that no, it was these spinning neutron stars that are about the size of a city, about 10, 20 kilometres across and, uh, and and spinning normally much, much faster. You mentioned that, that, that normally if you're looking for pulsars, they're going to be spinning at seconds or, or you know, hundreds mm. of milliseconds, that kind of uh, that kind of period. So it's, so it's, so it, it's not aliens, but also it doesn't match pulsars either. Or yeah. not pulsars so, that know of. so it's, it's way too luminous to be aliens it's, it's across the broad frequency. So it's definitely a natural object. Um, so that was disappointing. Now, once you've got this weird thing that's coming in at, you know, 18-minute intervals, um, you want to know, uh, okay, well, what could it be? And then the really nice thing is we actually have a lot of clues buried in the data. So it's really regular. It's like clockwork, right? So we were able to predict when the pulses would appear. I went back through the archives. I searched um, hundreds of observations, but, I, you know, I could predict when it would be. And I would draw out those observations and look at them and I'd see it switching on and off. Um, and so I could make those predictions, find it. Uh, but eventually my predictions were starting to be wrong. And I was like, oh, that's disappointing. I thought this thing had a constant period. And then we realized that, oh, wait, we're looking over such a long time that the Earth has moved in its orbit. And so the pulses are appearing like at a different time than they would otherwise. And once we corrected for that, the pulses all lined up. Ah, because the Earth's orbit is 16 light minutes across in diameter, right? So when the Earth, yeah. six months later, the Earth would be 16, these would be appearing a bit later. Ah, okay. Yeah, exactly. So we're, it's called barycentering. 
and we had to correct for that. And that that was kind of reassuring, actually, because up to that point we were thinking, oh, is it a space probe that's gone wrong? You know, does Voyager have this much power? Um, but once we realized, oh, look, it's way outside the solar system to the point where we can do the, the math very simply because um, the parallax is small, uh, you know, it, it's definitely really far away. Okay. So it's really far away, and actually we can work out how far away by looking at the um, time delay that the low frequencies get when they, they arrive in. So pulsar astronomy, um, you can look at what's called the dispersion measure. So low frequencies take a little bit longer. They get slowed down by space a bit more than high frequencies. So we could see that, and we have models for what space is made of. So we could take that dispersion delay models of space put it together and work out how far away it was so there's an analogy to that actually that i was um i was i was by the, the coast yesterday and as we looked over the over the sea from wales towards england you could you could tell which bits of the land were closer to you from what they looked like the bits the other way looked slightly mistier than the bits they're closer it's a similar kind of effect it's, it's more subtle but it's a, that kind of effect that just by looking at the type of lights that you're picking in this case radio waves you can get an indication of how far away it is, right? Yeah, exactly. So for us, it's a time delay rather than like a decrease in amplitude, which is sort of what you're seeing with your eyes. But yeah, um, exactly the same concept. So we know it's 4,000 light years away. We know it's repeating every 18 minutes. The other cool clue we have is that um, the polarization from the radio waves. So polarization is a measure of how like lined up the waves are in, uh, in light. And you, you can get this really easily, uh, again, using a, an analogy of what you can see with your eyes. If you go out and you're on a sunny day rather than one of these misty Cardiff days, if you come to Western Australia, there's plenty of these things. We have this thing called blue sky and you can put on polarized sunglasses. And when you do that, parts of the sky suddenly go a lot darker and you can really see the difference, basically, when you put the polarizers on. And that's because you're filtering uh, there's a kind of scattering called Riemann scattering that is very highly polarized. There's another kind of scattering called Mie scattering that is not very polarized. And so basically the putting the polarizers on, you're filtering preferentially to see Riemann scattering. And it's a bit like that with this. You know, we, we, we use the polarization measurements and that gives us an indication of what kind of physics we're seeing. And the physics that we're seeing, what you see in, in, in astronomy when you have very linearly polarized radio waves it means that there's magnetic fields. And that's because most, most things in astronomy, in terms of the orientation of the waves that are coming out, are random. Because it's actually quite yeah. hard to make things line up and, and, and be polarised, right? So, and there are, I guess there aren't many things that can do that, are there? Not really. There's some like super complicated spectral line transitions which are polarised, but they're really, really, really faint. Um and so, and they also require magnetic fields. It, it, it's just electromagnetism. To get the light to line up in a, in a single plane, you need to apply a magnetic field. So that's very exciting, right? Astronomers, top conference question, have you considered the impact of magnetic fields? Right away, we're getting a, a, an imprint of a ordered magnetic field. So ordered in this sense, I mean, there must be a, a magnetic field that's not all messy and turbulent and confused and weird. Whenever we looked at this source, we got exactly the same measurement of its polarization. And it was like always the same, no matter where it was in the sky or, or when we observed it, always the same. So that magnetic field is like really ordered. 
So the final bit of evidence or final sort of interesting astrophysical measurement we've made is I say the pulses come and go over 30 to 60 seconds, but they also sometimes have these super bright spikes to them, really, really tight bursts that are basically unresolved to us. So we can't see how short they really were because we weren't measuring quickly enough with the telescope. And these bursts therefore are about half a second or less. It could be smaller. Half a second is a great number because uh, half a light second is how small an object would be to have to vary in half a second, right? You can't have an object that is light minutes across varying in half a second. It's not possible. What it's saying in astrophysical terms is the emission region is smaller than half a light second. Uh, half a light second is the absolute minimum size that a normal star can be. And that's an M dwarf, right? Like, which is this tiny little red star. And it's not really conceivable that the whole M dwarf could like spontaneously do things at once. There's no emission mechanism like that. So that's a fantastic limit because when you combine that with the fact that we've got really great magnetic field, you know, signature, and we've got this repeating signal, very much implies that we have a tiny compact object that's rotating with a period of 18 minutes and has a strong magnetic field. And that is where we go to pulsars and white dwarfs and all these exotic phenomena, which are compact rotating objects. So so you've established that it's a, it's one of these exotic objects, so a, a, a neutron star or a white dwarf, these these are the, the cause of dead stars of different masses when they come to the ends, uh, ends of their lives. And you say they're spinning because the star that they came from was... Uh, was spinning in some way and and they have uh, particularly neutron stars very strong uh mag magnetic fields um is this then like pulsars that we see where pul we the, the analogy with pulsars is where it's a lighthouse type effect that the pulsar is spinning but there's a beam coming out uh slightly at an angle from that that spin axis and that's sweeping past the earth normally once every second or you know 300 milliseconds or, or whatever uh is this that kind of effect, but much smaller? Yeah, that's right. So pulsars are the neutron stars that are the collapsed remnants of massive stars. And what we think is when the massive star collapses, it spins up. So a bit like a figure skater drawing their arms in. Um, all of that angular momentum, you know, the radius gets smaller, but the mass gets you know compressed into this tiny radius. And so it has to go really, really quickly. And yeah, with pulsars, their magnetic fields can be misaligned with their rotation axis. So a beam of radiation, we think, comes out, uh, you know, perpendicular to the magnetic field. And as the pulsar sweeps around, that goes across our line of sight and we see a pulse. And sometimes, um, of course, this is going to be happening and it's not going to cross our line of sight. We're not going to see them. So that happens and we have a pretty good understanding of pulsars. Uh, we may have like some of the details of the emission mechanisms are not quite right, but we understand that, you know, some neutron stars do this and then as they get older, they slow down. And we can actually measure the rate at which a neutron star is slowing down to a sort of ungodly precision, right? These numbers are things like 10 to the minus 15 seconds per second. That's how accurately we know neutron star spin down rates. So we have this beautiful plot that we do where we can picture the, the rotation rate of the, the pulsars 
and the, the rate at which they're spinning down. It's called the PP dot diagram. And there is a line called the death line. <laughs> and every pulsar is born above the death line and slowly over its lifetime slows down and it crosses the death line and just fades away. What we think is happening there, like the math for a rotating neutron star is very surprisingly easy. And as a, when a pulsar is spinning quickly, it has lots of energy. And it, we call this um, spin-down luminosity. It has all this energy, and we can convert some fraction of that into radio waves. So it's producing a little bit of uh, radio radiation that we can pick up. And as it gets closer to the death line, um, it takes more and more of its spin-down luminosity to do this. And the ones that are right on the death line are using all of their spin-down luminosity to produce radio waves. And then after that, they just can't uh, produce radio anymore. They've, they've switched off. So you say, okay, well, if our source is pulsing and we're seeing a lighthouse beam sweeping across our, our line of sight, then where is it on the PP dot diagram? And we actually have a measure of that spin down. It's not a very good measure because it's quite hard to do, uh, but it does put it kind of above the death line, although it could be anywhere below it. Um, uh, but then if you work out how much power it would need to be spinning so slowly and still be producing these radio signals, it would need a magnetic field that's like the most magnetic thing in the universe, like a completely impossible magnetic field. Sounds unlikely. So it sounds unlikely. It's it's not really possible by any kind of way that stars work, right? It's not a physically reasonable magnetic field. The other problem we have is that the radio waves that we're picking up are so incredibly bright. They're just so bright that even if you are really generous with your calculations of how much energy this thing has, it shouldn't have enough energy to produce radio waves at all. If it's repeating every 20 minutes, it just should not be able to do this. So what we think is happening is that it is a class of objects called a magnetar. Now magnetars are known they um, typically spin with a period of between one and 10 seconds. And most of them don't produce radio waves at all. They're actually really young objects. They're X-ray bright. And we know how quickly they're spinning because we see the periodicity in the X-rays. But sometimes a magnetar will have like a star quake or something will fall onto it. And it will go very, very bright in the X-ray. We call that an outburst. And for a period of like, a few weeks, a few months, a few years after that, it will often produce radio waves. And so what we think is happening with normal magnetars is that the starquake causes something to kind of change in their magnetic fields. They get twisted, they get you know, amplified somehow. And while they're settling down, the magnetic energy is converted into radio waves. Once they've settled down, they stop producing radio waves. So we think that probably the most likely explanation for this weird signal we've seen is that it's a, a, a rotating neutron star with a powerful magnetic field that lies below the death line normally, but something has happened and the magnetic field has got twisted. And while it's detwisting, it's producing radio emission. And that would align up with a lot of the facts that we see. Um, we think it would explain why it was only on for three months at the beginning of 2018. And now it's not visible anymore. Is it gone? Um, so, so you can't find it at all? Yeah, it's vanished. So I've used, this is unpublished data, uh, Privcom Hurley Walker. Uh, I have used Meerkat, the most powerful telescope in the Southern Hemisphere, to follow it up with no detection. 
Um, and it's, so it's, it's inactive at the moment, which is disappointing. Um, but that is also a clue. Even a non-detection is a clue. And I think that that adds uh, some evidence to this theory that it's this ultra long period magnetar. It was active for a while and it's not active anymore. So that sounds that in, in 2018, although you didn't see the data then because no one was looking at the data at that time, um, kind of got lucky that you have to be seeing it at, uh, uh, at that time. But also how, how unlucky is it to have not seen these before? This is a, such an incredibly bright signal. Um, it's very rare to find one of something in astronomy or normally when you find one of something you then find lots of them so an example might be the fast radio bursts that were seen that actually when people found these things um didn't really know what they were and then actually they came out of the wood woodwork as people went to look at, at previous bits of data so is it possible there's there's more of these lurking in the data somewhere that no one's seen 100 percent, chris i mean we've been doing radio astronomy for 80 years and I find it absolutely baffling that we wouldn't find such an incredibly bright class of objects. So this source is 4,000 light years away. Now, that's not like on the other side of the galaxy. It's kind of in our galactic backyard. But it's still, um, you know, it's just in a normal boring part of the sky, basically. We've been looking at these parts of the plane for, with telescopes for, for 80 years. So they're so bright, we should have seen them since the 1960s. But I think there's a few things working against us. So one, the source that we found was only on for three months and we have like 10 years of observing uh, and we only found one of them so far. So potentially they're only on for three months in their entire existence, which could be millions of years, right? So they could have a very short duty cycle. So that's just going to make them staggeringly rare. The other thing is that we are, we actually have really good telescopes. They're very powerful. And we typically only need to look at a patch of sky for like 10 minutes. And then you've got all the information you need. But if your source is only on for one minute in 20, then you're just going to miss the source about half the time if you're only you know, looking for 10 minutes. Change the period of the source and those arguments you know, become even stronger. So there is actually uh, one source that was detected in 2004 and was written up in 2005, called the Galactic Burster, or Galactic Burper, depending on who you talk to. And this was a source that repeated every 77 minutes, and each pulse lasted about 10 minutes. They didn't measure the polarization. The telescopes couldn't measure enough frequencies to get a good handle on the distance. It was quite bright. It was like a Jansky or two. But that doesn't tell you much if you don't know how far away it is. And it did five pulses and then disappeared forever. And that was, you know, 15, uh, 17 years ago. So, and there've also been other like puzzling transients where somebody looks back through their data and they go, oh, there was a thing. It's, it, we only had one recording of, in that patch of sky in, you know, months. So perhaps something was repeating, but they only got one pulse because they only recorded that little patch. So there've been a lot of these like puzzling transients. And I think basically we were, we were fortunate because we were using the Murchison Widefield Array, which has this thousand square degree field of view. And so I was performing what's called a drift scan. The sky was rotating past and I was looking at all of it. So when we finally came to look at the data and we saw this source changing, we didn't just have one observation of 10 minutes. I had hours of data surrounding the initial detection. And then when I went back through the archive, of course, anytime anybody had been pointing 
almost anywhere on the sky when the source was up, I could find it. Uh, I think that really helped. And I think so basically they're rare, but we've had selection biases in the way we've been searching the sky that have made it even harder to find these objects. Using telescopes with small fields of view, not staying on target for very long, um, and yeah, then not chasing the data up quickly enough to notice and be able to come back before the source is switched off. So those are all things that I'm trying to fix in my new observing campaign. I'm planning, I'm writing at the moment, a proposal to look at the entire galaxy every week with the MWA and process the data in like near real time and essentially look for more of these. I mean, a lot of people have asked, oh, well, you know, what else can you tell about this source? What telescopes are you gonna use? I've used all the telescopes. I've used the most sensitive radio telescope. Um, I have just submitted, as of 10 minutes before this interview, a proposal to use the Hubble Space Telescope. I have submitted a proposal to use the Chandra X-ray Telescope. Um, the thing is that the source is off now, so it's probably just another invisible neutron star that we'll never be able to detect. And 4,000 light years away is far enough that the Hubble won't be able to see it, for example, right? Not if it's a neutron star. I think it's going to be really difficult to chase up this source for the same reason that people haven't been able to chase up other low frequency transients in the last few years. It, once they're off, there's just nothing there to show for them. Um, Jim Condon once famously said, uh, there's nothing as useless as a radio source. And I discovered while working on this project, there is, there's something even more useless. And that is a radio transient. Because it's like all the disadvantages of a radio source, but the added disadvantage that it's no longer there. So you can't even follow it up. But anyway, so that's that's why I think the best thing to do now is to find more of them quickly, like turn with a quick turnaround and then follow them up. And you say you've got the, the Murchison Widefield Array and, and other telescopes that are around have this advantage that they see large bits of the sky. That's because of the type of telescope they are. They're not a telescope. People might be familiar with things like uh, the Lovell telescope at Jodrell Bank and so on, which are these big radio dishes that, that point to a very, a very specific part of the sky. The, the MWA is this, uh, it, it's like a field of antennas, right? It's, uh, it's um, very different to any other telescope. And that gives it, that's part of the, the, the way it can do this, right? Yeah, so the MWA is like, it's composed of 128 tiles, or, which are spread out across about 25 square kilometres of Western Australian outback. So right out in the radio quiet reaches of the Murchison region of Western Australia. Each tile is made up of 16 weird spiders, basically. They are technically crossed dipole antennas. So we're measuring the north-south polarization and the east-west polarization. Um, and they look like little triangles of metal all wedged together in a tile. Um, and basically the size of those tiles has been chosen to give us a field of view on the sky that is, is big and useful, it's about a thousand square degrees, but not overwhelmingly big, like to the point where we can't actually do anything with the data. So if you are looking at too big an area of the sky, if the sun is up, the sun is in your observation. If some of the very bright radio sources in the sky, like the Crab Pulsar, Cygnus A, um, Pictorae, Fornax A, the Galactic Center, if they're up, they're in your observation. And that just makes life really difficult. So you want it big, but not too big. 
Uh, but it does still have, I think, pretty much the biggest... Oh, no, there's one telescope in the world that has a bigger field of view, and that's the long wavelength array in the US. But it's comparable. Um, and yeah, so uh, it's an unusual telescope. And the reason that we're exploring this uh, unusual design is because we're working on the Square Kilometre Array. So Square Kilometre Array is going to be the world's largest radio telescope. And it's split across uh, Australia and South Africa. The low frequency part of that will be in Western Australia at exactly the same site, at exactly the same observatory. And so the MWA has very much been a pathfinder uh, towards SKA technologies. You know, like we have a, a radio frequency over fiber technology. We've been examining how the ionosphere behavior um, Just the atmosphere works. distorting the signal, right? Yeah, so the ionosphere is this charged layer above the troposphere, like is the air we breathe. The ionosphere is like electrons above that, and that interferes with the radio signals. It can change them. There's good places on the Earth to observe with radio telescopes, and there's bad places. Uh, and it looks like the observatory is a good place, but it was a good idea to investigate that in detail. And of course, the radio quietness is just absolutely vital. You know, if I'd found a repeating radio signal and then I listened a little bit further and I just worked out it was a local radio station, that would be a much less exciting discovery. And um, that's because the radio frequencies you look at are, what, 70 to 200 megahertz, right? Or, or that kind of range, if I remember the paper correctly. Yeah, that's right. And so when people say, you're listening to 92.9 FM, they're saying 92.9 megahertz. That's right in the middle of our receiving band. <laughs> so so, do, so doing this in Cardiff wouldn't work? Not well. So the low frequency array, uh, the LOFAR instrument built out of the Netherlands, does look at the same frequencies and yet it's located across Europe. But they have they do two different things that help them with this. So one is that they are actually correlating um, tiles, but their tiles are called stations and they're a bit bigger, that are way further apart. So that, you know, if you're listening to 92.9 FM in Amsterdam, but you've got, you know, 103.1 in um, in the UK, those are different frequencies and they're different radio stations with different amplitudes. So basically the signals don't correlate together and they just disappear. Um, the other thing that they're doing is that they have divided their frequency band up a bit smaller. Um, they have to, so that they can select exactly which parts of the radio spectrum they can use that are the cleanest and have the least radio frequency interference in them. Um, we have the luxury of being able to use the entire band, which is wonderful. And that's really what made a lot of the um, the discovery, uh, a lot of the physical understanding of this object possible, was being able to observe all those different frequencies and get the polarization information. When we have the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, this, this world's largest, greatest radio telescope that's going to be built in over the next few years, I guess the next decade to get uh, fully built um uh is this going to be one of the things that it's well suited to do is to find random things changing in the sky or is this something that you now have to think about well actually let's tweak things so we can find these a bit more easily well first off i want to find more of them myself and then with existing instruments and then hopefully we can get a handle on what that population looks like i think that will probably happen before the advent of the ska because we have the tools the software, the people, the expertise um, to do that now. So I think, well, this particular current 
sort of known unknown, it's now known, um, will be a known known by the time the M- the SK switches on. But I think what this has really showed is the value in looking for those unknown unknowns. I started this project as an undergraduate student project because those, those can be a little bit high risk. You can try something out, see if it works. With a PhD project or a postdoctoral project nowadays, there's a really strong pressure on us to pick things that are going to work, that are going to pan out. And if you don't succeed, I think it can be difficult for your career, even if it was a good research idea. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that we found this in an undergraduate project. I think that that is almost inevitable in the way that science is structured at the moment. And that's, I guess that's partly because, as you say, with the, with the later on research projects of PhD students or postdocs, you're trying, you, you kind of want to find something uh, to be able to write about. Whereas an undergrad project, it's more about the skills in doing the searching. That's, that's what is being trying to be developed there. Yeah. I mean, this is perfect for that. It is perfect. But it's, I, I think, a little bit worrying to be confining our high-risk endeavours to only undergraduate students. I mean... <sighs> Wouldn't experienced researchers also have a lot to give? Wouldn't it be good if we were also allowed to fail once in a while because we were trying something ambitious? So I think there's a little bit of a cautionary tale about the structure of science there. Um, The other thing that I'd say is that it's a a reminder that when we're designing the SKA and the software pipelines that will look at the data, it's really important not to design anything out. I mean, we see plots of like, uh, this is the... parameter space we're going to search because we're going to uh, look at these particular populations. And then there's just big gaps where nobody's looking because no one expects there to be anything. So we've got to search those as well. You need to be sure that you haven't designed out uh, a really, really interesting range of objects um, when you're creating all your pipelines. So I think there's a sort of general lesson there, and I hope to at least to be able to put those into practice when I get to the point where I'm using the SKA. And I guess the equivalent in optical astronomy is the uh, Vera Rubin Observatory, which is going to be doing this, looking for things changing on a few days timescale. And a lot of the effort there is is machine learning and, and computer programming. But the challenge there is that that's great, because once you know what to look for, you can tell it to go and look the, through in the entire data set. But you do need to tell it what to look for and that doesn't help when searching for things that you don't know what they are yeah and of course there's still going to be contaminants so doing kind of untrained networks you know self-training networks they would quite likely um, give you a whole bunch of in our case ionospheric scintillation or like long-term interstellar scintillation of distant galaxies and perhaps miss something that's totally unexpected because it would be rejected as radio frequency interference So I think there's still room for humans. I don't think the robots are coming for our jobs yet, but definitely some kind of partnership with clever software is required. For instance, we're looking now at running um, transient detection on all of the data we're processing for GleamX, even the extragalactic stuff. Why not? It's tens of thousands of observations, and you're dividing each of those up into single time frames. So it's millions and millions of measurements. And even if we have like a a low false detection rate, that's still going to be thousands of candidates to look through. And that's a fun problem. I mean, it's a good problem to have. But uh, yeah, we just need to approach that intelligently and not design out any interesting parameter space. Otherwise, we might miss not finding aliens again. Yeah, 
Yeah. I I know I I did think that was you know when you have that moment where you think oh my goodness my life is I know it is over. I did have that moment. Uh it's not it's, it's not entirely true with this source. Um I actually it's wonderful, you know, I'm getting to do all this exciting new proposals and and understand magnetars and things. It's it's, it's wonderful. But yeah, if it had been aliens, I I guess I'd probably be in like a secure compound right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd rather be at my desk doing astronomy. So, you know, that's a win. Well, um, when you find another one, uh, do let us know. Or if this one comes back, um, I guess there's always going to be part of you staring at this part of the sky, just wistfully hoping for a little signal. At some of that. Maybe set an alarm for every 18 minutes for the next 30 years. <laughs> and keep an eye out. Yeah, and it's been delightful, actually. A number of people that have reached out to me um, across the world who have said, oh, can I pick it up? Can I can I find it if I point my, you know, my little receiver at the sky? Um, but one of them wrote to me and he has a four meter radio telescope in his backyard that he's built and maintains. And I don't know what his latitude is. I think he might be a little bit too far north. But if I find another one that's a bit further north than, than uh, our transient um, I've said, you know, I think you'd be able to detect it. That's that's not a negligible amount of collecting area. So yeah, yeah, but a citizen science, um, yeah, I am going to be wistfully searching for a little while, but I don't think it'll be all that long before we find another one. Dr. Natasha Hurley-Walker from Curtin University and the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research. Uh, thanks very much and uh, speak to you again next time there's not aliens in the sky. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks for having me. That's it for this month. Don't forget, you can find past episodes at pythagastro.uk, where you can also subscribe to the podcast. Or you can find us on Spotify. Just search for Pythagorean Astronomy. Until next month, goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.